On the 5th of May, 1980, the May Bank Holiday Monday, uh, it was a memorable date for me for three reasons. Firstly, it was Chris's birthday, um, which often occurs on a bank holiday. I think I bought her a present. I probably did, but don't judge me, it was a while ago. We'd only been married a few months. The second reason that that date is um, memorable, it was quite a historical day that some of you who are older may well remember and will immediately recall, because it was that afternoon. Do we have a slide? That the SAS stormed the Iranian embassy in Prince's Gate in central London and successfully ended a six-day siege by six Iranian gunmen who had taken 26 hostages. The third reason it's a memorable date for me and relevant to our subject this morning is that Chris and I, along with a few college friends, were in a theatre in central London, not too far from the Iranian embassy when that siege took place, at a lecture led by... C. Everett Koop, who was the US Surgeon General at the time, and the late, great Francis Schaeffer, a Christian pastor, apologist, theologian, and philosopher, who I'm sure many of you are familiar with. Koop and Schaeffer had just published a book entitled Whatever Happened to the Human Race, a book that helped me formulate my own views on abortion and euthanasia in particular. Remember, I was a young medical student at the time. Difficult to imagine, I know, but I was. And that book was extremely helpful. More importantly, though, that book followed on from Schaefer's book, How Should We Then Live?, um, which was published just a couple of years before, in 1976, in which Schaeffer traced the decline of a Christian consensus in Western culture since Roman days. The title of the book was taken from Ezekiel chapter 33, but could easily have been taken from verses 15 and 16 of our passage this morning, which says, Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Now, the thesis of Schaeffer's book, How Should We Then Live?, is that Western culture has arrived at a point where God is no longer taken into account or believed in, and so there's no meaningful concept of absolute truth in either morality or law. We therefore live in a world that is arbitrary, governed by uh, a relative attitude rather than absolute to to morality and to law, leaving people with only two principles to abide by. This was Schaeffer's thesis. Personal security and affluence, two things that are chased after in a culture that has got to that point. Now, whilst the book was published in 1976, it's almost prophetic in its outlook as it is relevant today as it was then, and it's been republished in 2022. It's available in paperback, it's available on Kindle. Um, There is actually a hardback copy 
that's on sale for £350. I should have kept mine. <laughs> but, I, but it does make extremely interesting reading. Schaefer starts the book with an analysis of why the Roman Empire imploded due to internal strife and moral decay. And towards the end of the book, he says this. Then there are the five attributes that marked Rome at its end. First, a mounting love of show and luxury, that is, affluence. Second, a widening gap between the very rich and the very poor. Third, an obsession with sex. Fourth, freakishness in the arts, masquerading as originality. And fifth, an increased desire to live off the state. And his final comment is, it all sounds so familiar, doesn't it? Doesn't that sum up aspects of our culture? So the question that Paul seeks to answer in this section of Ephesians that we're in today is given all that he's talked about, uh, taught about God's overarching plan of salvation for Jew and Gentile alike, how should, how could a Christian live in a culture like that? A culture that bears many similarities to what we're living in here in the UK at the moment. How should we then live in our culture? Well, um, in his introduction, Mike has told us that we, we, we've been studying Ephesians. We, um, we started actually last September, and the last time we were actually in the letter was in November. Um, so a quick recap. You may recall that Paul was writing to the Ephesians that, um, in Ephesus from prison in Rome. He began in chapter 1 with an overarching and sweeping look at God's eternal purposes in bringing salvation to the world through Christ encouraging the Ephesians that God will work his purposes out and will bring everything to fulfilment in Christ. After that amazing look at God's eternal plan, in chapter 2, he focuses down on the Ephesians and how they came to faith through God's grace and encouraged them that God has brought them together, brought together both Jew and Gentile into one unified church and that he has provided all the leadership, ministry, and support it needs to be built together as a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And in chapter 3, he describes his ministry to them as the Gentiles, and he prays a marvellous prayer for them to be strengthened in the spirit, to know Christ better, and to be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now, after completing those three chapters of teaching and encouragement, the next three chapters, the second half of the letter, which is where we are in at the moment, are full of practical advice as to how to grow as a Christian and to live in a dark and sinful world for Christ. He'll soon give instructions on how to live out the Christian life in marriage, at home, and at work. But initially, in our passage today, he gives some general advice and encouragement as to how we should be all living in the world in order to show the love of Christ, to live distinctively from the world, from the world around us, and how to live a spirit-filled and thankful life. So firstly, let's think about walking in love, verses 1 to 6. Paul says in verse 1 and 2 that we should Follow God's example and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us. 
Well, how did Christ love us? Well, he goes on to say that Christ gave himself up as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, thinking about what love is, I wonder if you remember what Prince Charles said at his engagement to Lady Diana Spencer when that was announced. You do, don't you? (laughs) The journalist tells the happy couple, you both look very much in love, to which Diana replies, oh yes, absolutely. But Charles, however, answers, whatever in love means. Well, I do hope that King Charles has subsequently discovered what being loved does mean, but there are two aspects to love that we must always remember. Firstly, love is always an act of the will. And secondly, love always has practical results. An act of the will with practical results. Now, as some of you know, because you're in my home group and I go on about it, Chris and I have been having trouble with our oil-fired central heating boiler recently. Well, I show my love to Chris by getting up far too early in the freezing house, go to the outside, which is even more freezing, onto the drive in my dressing gown and slippers, and manually fire up the boiler from the outside so that she can warm up. I'm sure you will agree with me that that is a practical outworking of love. Similarly, Chris shows her love to me in a very thoughtful and practical way. That although she doesn't like it that much, she will sometimes cook us a lovely dinner that contains pork. Such love. Love is an act of the will and love has consequences. So out of his great love for us, Christ deliberately and purposefully went to the cross, took our place, bore our sin and reconciled us to God. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Walk in love, says Paul. But if you're walking in love, if you're following God's example, then there are some things that you just mustn't do. Paul's typical style, in in his typical style, he now tells us things that we shouldn't do, and then after uh, that he'll tell us things that we should do. The negative is first, the positive comes second. He does that a lot. He firstly gives us two groups of three things that he says we mustn't be doing. The first three things he lists twice. Did you notice that? In verse 3 he says, But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or greed. Then in verse 5 he says, You can be sure no immoral, impure or greedy person has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. In fact, these same three things, immorality, impurity, and greed, have already been mentioned before in Ephesians in chapter 4.19, where Paul says, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality, 
sexual immorality, so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. He also reflects this in the letter to Colossians, which has a lot of overlap with Ephesians. So we're dealing with something quite important, aren't we? Because he mentions it so much. Sexual immorality, impurity and greed. You are God's holy people. You want to walk in love and to imitate Christ. So these three things, which are the diametrical opposite of love, you will want to avoid, won't you? Sexual immorality is never and can never be love. You may remember the pleas of those wishing to redefine marriage back in 2015, that it's all about love. Love is love, shouts the LGBTQ plus community and their activists. They couldn't be more wrong. Similar to Rome in Paul's day, I think our culture has decided that there is no such thing as sexual immorality. In a culture where a materialist, humanist worldview predominates, where there's no belief in a creator God, and where matter and energy are all there is, the concept of a moral framework for human sexual activity is both meaningless and arbitrary. This attitude has grown out of the gradual loss of any concept of absolute truth during the 20th century. Schaefer points that out very clearly in his book. And the so-called sexual revolution that took place in the 1960s on the back of widespread effective availability of contraception and the introduction of legalised abortion on demand, we've arrived at a point where the only factor taken into account with any form of sexual activity whatsoever is the matter of consent, which is an extremely weak inhibitor to any form of sexual activity and extremely difficult to prove one way or the other. Well, as we all know, there is a creator God who has set boundaries. There is such a thing as objective truth. So it's important for us as Christians to be clear on what Paul means by sexual immorality. Now you don't have to read very far into your Bible um, before you discover that God's plan for humanity is for sexual activity to be an outworking of the love between man and woman expressed in a lifelong, mutually faithful, exclusive marriage relationship, forming a social structure for healthy relationships and for, if they come, the bringing up of children. Any sexual activity outside of this structure is what Paul means by sexual immorality. And he tells us that there shouldn't be even a hint. Did you notice that? Not even a hint of it amongst the Christian community in the church. Not even a hint. He goes on to say in verse 12 that there are even things that we shouldn't even be talking about because they're so bad. Now, the fruit of the so-called sexual revolution can be seen in the horror that lurks behind every internet-connected screen that we own. There's a world of misogyny, violence, child abuse, 
sex trafficking, physical and mental health damage, drug addiction, misery, broken relationships and and suicide contained in what is euphemistically called the porn industry. That's from the Greek word porneia, which is exactly the word Paul uses here in our passage for sexual immorality. Not even a hint of it. Now, as a brief aside, internet pornography has brought the possibility of sexual immorality into our homes, families and relationships in a way that has never ever before been seen in history. And if this is something that you find challenging or are struggling to cope with, then let me encourage you, let me implore you to seek help and to take some action. Talk to one of us. Don't leave it. Well, Paul also lists obscenity, foolish talk and coarse joking as being out of place in the Christian community. And I don't think that needs much comment, as I think it's fairly obvious, isn't it, that that shouldn't be something existing in the church. Well, it's all very well, isn't it, for Paul to tell us that these things are things that we mustn't do, but how do we achieve that? Is it just a matter of trying to stop? And you'll all know how successful that isn't. How does the Christian cope? After all, although we've come to Christ, placed our trust and faith in him, being cleansed from our guilt and sin and want to live for him, we live in a sinful world that affects us all the time and we still suffer from temptation from within, don't we? To wander away from the truth and from the God that we love and want to live for. So how do we do this? Well, I well remember in my teenage years going on Christian youth holidays in the summer. One of them was especially memorable because that's where I met Chris. The Evangelization Society that ran, ran the holidays. And I remember one of the leaders in the course of one of his talks saying that he was frequently asked by teenagers, and I was personally coping with this at the time, how to stop bad thoughts, the things that pop into your mind that you don't want there. How do you stop bad thoughts? And I've never forgotten his answer. His answer was, think good thoughts. The antidote for the bad is to do the good. And Paul tells us now in verses 7 to 14, live in the light Live in the light. Verse 8, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord as children of light. Well, how do you do that? Well, Paul immediately explains by giving us a mixed metaphor. He does that quite a lot if you read Paul's letters. He likes mixed metaphors. He said, for the fruit of the light, okay, consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Now, to achieve goodness, righteousness, and truth... Paul encourages us in these verses to do two things. Firstly, in verse 10, to find out what pleases the Lord. And secondly, in verse 17, to understand what the Lord's will is. Find out what pleases the Lord and understand his will. Now, don't you think it's amazing that it's possible for us to do things that please the Lord. Things that make God happy. 
incredible, but we can. So what does make God happy? What pleases the Lord? Well, Paul gives us clues in, in, in some of his other writings. In 1 Timothy 2, for instance, that a peaceful and quiet lives lived in all godliness and holiness is pleasing to God. Uh, in Colossians 1, he says this, he says, Live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. How? Bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. Bear fruit in every good work and grow in your knowledge. That pleases God. Now we've already seen in chapter 2 of Ephesians, haven't we, that we have been created for good works and God has prepared them in advance for us to do. So living in the light, the antidote to darkness and sin is what we have to do, live in the light. Do good, walk in love, imitate Christ in how you live and seek his will. Okay, that's how to please God, but what is his will for you? What is God's will for you? Well, Paul tells us in Thessalonians what God's will is. He says this, it is God's will that you should be sanctified and that you should avoid sexual immorality. Now, if Paul's sounding a bit like a stuck record on the sexual immorality stuff, it's because it is so incredibly important. It's the opposite of being sanctified. But it is God's will that you should be sanctified, become more holy, become more like Jesus. That's his will. Secondly, and Paul says this in, in, in 1 Thessalonians, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. That's God's will for you. Be a thankful, sanctified person. So that's how we please God and understand his will. We will be living in the light. Now, um, before we move on, just a quick aside about verse 14. This is what is, it is said. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Now, here Paul puts together a couple of phrases from Isaiah. They're not direct quotes. And this is quite possibly an early Christian hymn. And he's quoting something that his readers would have understood and been familiar with. Um, but the content is obvious, isn't it? Um, the word sleeper and the word dead refer to those who aren't yet believers. So this is an evangelistic urge in, in verse 14 for people to put their trust in Christ. Um, because without faith, it is impossible to please God, says um, Hebrews. So to live... The way that Paul wants us to, um, we have to walk in the light. So I think Paul has made it obvious, hasn't he, that we have to be extremely careful how we live because the days are evil, verse 15 and 16. And he has explained there both the difficulties and the solutions around living a life that is honouring to God, imitating Christ and living in the light. So having encouraged us to walk in love, to live in the light, he now encourages us to sing in the spirit, verses 15 to 20, sing in the spirit. Now, and we've been singing, it's been great this morning, hasn't it? You'll find, if, if you're finding all this is a bit much in, the, uh, in how, to, how to live um, your Christian life, let me give you some encouragement. 
It may all sound quite daunting, what Paul is asking us to do in this passage. We have to imitate God, look, love like Christ, live in the light, do good works, find out what pleases God and fulfill his will and become more holy. We need to show God's love to the world around us, a world that feels very dark and difficult at times. It's tough, isn't it, living this life in, in this world? But there are two important things to remember. Firstly... If you've come to Christ in repentance and faith and found new life in him, you have been freed from the power of sin and you now have the power and ability to not sin. You can do it. And more importantly, you've been empowered to do good that is pleasing to God. So you've been freed from sin's power. Secondly, you have the Holy Spirit to help you. And that's Paul's point here in these last few verses. You're not alone in this enterprise of living a life pleasing to God, because Paul, as Paul has pointed out in chapter 1, when you came to faith, you received the Holy Spirit, a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. And now Paul encourages us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he uses a negative analogy regarding getting drunk. Getting drunk involves taking something in more and more progressively affecting you until you lose control of your faculties and end up in all sorts of trouble. Being filled with the Spirit is the complete opposite of this. To be progressively filled with the Holy Spirit will result in empowerment, encouragement and strength to live the sort of God-honouring life that Paul has been encouraging us to do in these preceding few verses. Now, the word that Paul uses here for being filled with the Spirit implies a continuous action, a continuous filling. It's not some sort of one-off experience. It's ongoing being filled, an ongoing day-to-day activity. So, how do you achieve it? Well, soak yourself in the Scriptures, yes. Pray and talk to God and foster your relationship with him, yes. Do that. But Paul highlights something community-based here, something that we do together, something that will build us up as a community and something that we've been doing already this morning. He encourages us to speak and sing together and make music. And he highlights three things, doesn't he? Psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit. Psalms. Here's one. The decrees of the Lord are firm and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. You you all know where that's from, don't you? Psalm 19, my favourite psalm. Hymns. Psalms. Hymns. Praise my soul, the King of heaven. To his feet thy tribute bring. Ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, Who like thee his praise should sing? Psalms, hymns, songs from the Spirit. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. All the glory evermore to him. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Psalms, hymns, songs for the Spirit. Now, 
I've cheated a bit there because it's quite probable that when Paul used those three words, he wasn't thinking of three really distinct things. Um, They're probably interchangeable, but it was fun to think about it, wasn't it, and to think about what we sing. Apart from everything else, singing is extremely good for you. I couldn't find this But I received on my Facebook feed, I don't use Facebook very much, while I was in Ethiopia, I received something on my Facebook feed where an atheist had said in in a post, so you Christians think God started the Big Bang 13 billion years ago, caused all heavy elements to be dispersed across the universe so that the galaxies could form and this planet could form and life could evolve on this tiny little speck of absolutely nothing in the edge of a, of a practically unrecognisable galaxy. And we evolved and became what we are. And he did all of this so that you, he could have a relationship with you. And someone replied, that's why we sing. Singing is an, a reflection of your heart towards God and is enormously good for you. Now, the final encouragement that Paul gives us in this passage in verse 20 is something that he's already said earlier that we've skipped over. Did you notice that? Back in verse 4, he said, Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. But rather thanksgiving. And here in verse 20, he encourages us to, to always give thanks Having encouraged us to be filled with the Spirit, he now encourages us to always give thanks to God the Father and to do so in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole Trinity is involved in this enterprise of helping and encouraging us to live lives that are honouring and pleasing to God. Now, I don't know if you were aware of this, but being thankful, like singing, being thankful, being a grateful person is incredibly good for you. And it's possible to find a wealth of reliable, peer-reviewed, good quality, scientific evidence, piles of it, that show that being a thankful person has all sorts of benefits. Improvements in health, longevity, happiness, job satisfaction, prosperity. In fact, I found one list of 31 things that improve for people who are thankful It puzzles me slightly as to whom or to what a non-Christian is expressing gratitude. But for a Christian, it's obvious, isn't it, as to what we're grateful for. Now, as you'll probably know, um, Chris and I lived in Ethiopia for several years and we kept a blog. And one day, when we weren't entirely sure what we should write, um, we sat down together in our tiny apartment three stories up in in Addis Ababa, and reflected on everything that we were thankful for. It became a blog post. It was easy to get a bit fed up in a city like Addis Ababa with all the muck, poverty, inconvenience, intermittent power and water, difficulty getting fuel and, and food. So we thought we would give it some thought and come up with what we were thankful for. The glow in the night sky after sunset the tiny iridescent sunbirds feeding in the beautiful blue jacaranda tree just outside our window, the fact that we had a reasonably decent vehicle compared to most others, 
the beautiful mountains that we could see in the distance through our lounge window, the amazing people that we'd met, and so on. We made a list, so much to be thankful for, and it became surprisingly long. Can I encourage you maybe to do that? Do a stop take. Perhaps sit down this afternoon and see how it pans out. What do you have to be thankful for, to be a thankful person, and see how that impacts on how you feel? But the focus of our thankful hearts should always primarily be the Lord Jesus, shouldn't it? He who out of sheer love for us gave himself up, took our sin on himself, paid the price. Every lash of the whip, every spike of a thorn, every hammer blow of a nail, every insult due for us. Such love. So as we come to remember around the Lord's table in a few minutes, how can our hearts not overflow with thankfulness? How should we then live, our Schaefer? Walk in love, imitate Christ, live in the light and expose the darkness. The light that came into the world 2,000 years ago has shone on you. You're not darkness anymore. Keep step with the Spirit, filled with him in your daily walk. Always give thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.